I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 147. I also have printed it out for you on the handout that I've given. And the reason that I've done that is the Psalms are Hebrew poetry, which means that the sentences are structured in such a way that you're, um, it's kind of like a piece of art. And so I've tried to lay it out to capture some of the artistic way in which it's been laid out. And it's not art for art's sake, but it's simply art in order to emphasize certain things so that when you see the structure, you say, oh, I can now see what the psalmist was trying to emphasize by the way in which he structured his poetry. So it's not just uh, to be cute or fancy. Um, I know when I was a kid growing up, I had no interest in poetry. And uh, in fact, uh, even as um, uh, a seminary student, I found the Psalms to be one of the hardest books of the Bible. I just didn't get what was going on there. But the more that I've studied it, I realized that the poetry is intended to create vivid pictures in our minds to draw us in and to capture not just our mind's attention, but to capture our hearts. So follow along as I read Psalm 147. Hear God's word and receive it with a believing heart. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He cast the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. There ends the reading of God's word. May he also add his blessing to it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I suspect that our young people have perhaps encountered this question before in their lives, or maybe they've even asked it themselves. The question is, why do you have to worship twice on Sunday? And maybe your friends say to you, we only have to go in the morning. You have to go morning and afternoon? In a sense, how do you answer that question? 
Psalm 147 answers it in the very first verse. It says, Praise the Lord. That's why we go to worship. And then it gives us two reasons. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. It's kind of like answering the question, why do you have to eat ice cream? And immediately, what do you say? Because it's good! I like it! Why do you have to eat your meat and potatoes? Because it makes me strong. Well, congregation, why do we have to worship? Because it's good, in a sense. It's common sense. This is what makes sense to us. Actually, this is what makes sense to the Word of God. And I believe that what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 147 is to document and to prove what he states in verse 1. Is it really good to sing praises to our God? He is about to show us. Is it pleasant? And is, it, and is a song of praise fitting? He's going to show us how appropriate it is that we are here today, not only to listen to a sermon. Congregation, just as important as listening to a sermon is presenting our songs of praise. Why should we present the song of praise? Here's the psalmist's argument. I'm going to summarize it with three key points. The first, and you can see this kind of in the middle of your, uh, of your psalm that I've laid out for you. The first is becoming aware of who God is. And the first awareness is Yahweh restores His church. Yahweh restores His church. And I've chosen the term Yahweh because if you look at verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord, and you'll notice Lord is in all capital letters, and it's in that way that the English editors or the English translators have said to us, we want you as the English reader to know that the Hebrew term behind this word is the term Yahweh, Yahweh. Some of the older versions and in some of our songs, it's the same word as Jehovah, Jehovah. It's the name that God gave to himself when Moses was standing at the burning bush. And Moses says, if I go back, they're going to ask me, who sent you? What do I say to them? And Moses said, tell, uh, God said to Moses, tell them, I am that I am has sent you. Well, do you know how you say I am in Hebrew? It's the word Yah, which is the short form of Yahweh, the name that means I am. This is God's personal name that he gave to the Israelites. So first of all, Yahweh restores his church. Notice in verse 2 it says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. Now, the first thing that we think of when you build the city, you think of walls, you think of streets, you think of houses. And that's part of the city, but the next phrase really explains what it means for God to build Jerusalem, and it says, He gathers the outcasts of Israel. When we think of outcasts, we think of those who are on the kind of periphery of society. 
Maybe those who are the social misfits and maybe you have felt like an outcast because nobody wants to talk to you, nobody wants to be friends with you and so forth. That's not what he's talking about here. If you want to get a sense for who are the outcasts of Israel, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. The end of Deuteronomy, if you want to have a good grasp of what's going on in most of the Old Testament... Pay very careful attention to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, there is a list of blessings and curses. He says in chapter 28, if you obey me, these are the blessings that will come upon you. If you disobey me, here are the curses that will come upon you. And then when the curses come upon you, then we come to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 begins saying this with verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, back in chapter 28, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Remember, at one time they were in Jerusalem, but Nebuchadnezzar came and uh, drew them all the way off to Babylon. And he says, when you're in Babylon, boys and girls, remember Daniel? Daniel was out in Babylon. And he says, when you as a people are out in a nation such as Babylon, what does he say? Verse 2, and you return, excuse me, and it says at the end of verse 1, where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then what's going to happen? Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now notice verse 4. If your outcasts, see that word outcast? It's the same word that we encounter in Psalm 147 verse 2. Verse 4 says, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven... From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And it goes on to explain how that takes place. Now, we go back to Psalm 147, and now we read Psalm uh, uh, verse 2, and it means something, doesn't it? It says that He gathers the outcasts of Israel. In other words, those who have gone into sin. Congregation, I wonder... I wonder how many here today have a burden on their heart because of their own sin. Are you here today, congregation, with a burden on your heart? Maybe it's something that happened this past week. An unkind word. A thoughtless gesture. Or maybe your mind goes back five years or ten years or thirty years And there's this sense of deep shame and guilt. I want you to know, congregation, this morning that God is a God who gathers the outcast. He gathers those who have gone down a path of sin and He brings you back. Maybe you are on that path even now and maybe you are away from God. I want you to notice what God is able to do. In verse 3 it says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 
Some of you are brokenhearted. This morning we prayed, according to some of the announcements in the bulletin, of those of you who have lost loved ones. There's a brokenness in your heart. God is able to bring a peace and a calm. Not necessarily able, not necessarily the plan is to restore what what has been taken, but He is able to give what you need. And how do we know that? Notice the next two lines, verses 4 and 5, I have indented because all of a sudden it seems that the psalmist has lost track of what he's talking about and ends up somewhere in the heavens. In verse 4 it says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Congregation, our solar system, right? The sun that we saw come up on the horizon this morning. Our solar system and our planets are part of a galaxy called the Milky Way. Scientists estimate that in, the, in our galaxy alone are 100,000 million stars. Boys and girls, could you even write that number? I had to think it through. 100,000. That's a one with five zeros behind it. 100,000. But it's 100,000 million. If I've calculated it right, there are three sets of zeros. Three, six, nine, plus our five. So that's one with 14 zeros. And that's just our galaxy. And what does it say here? God is the one who determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. And then he goes on to verse 5 and says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. And how do we know that? Well, if he knows the names of a hundred thousand million stars times however many hundred thousand million galaxies there are, then we have a God who is very, very knowledgeable. Not only knowledgeable, but he created them. And then the last part of verse 5, it says, His understanding is beyond measure. Beyond measure. How do you measure something, boys and girls? When my daughter helps me make pancakes, we take out the measuring cup, and when she pours in the oil, I say, okay, you have to go up to this number. This number. How do you measure something? By numbers. And in fact, in the Hebrew language in which Psalm 147 was originally written, when it says his understanding is beyond measure, very literally it says his understanding, there is no number. Now I've given you this sheet so that you can maybe mark things up, and what I would mark up is, I would circle the word measure in verse 5, and I would circle the word number in verse 4. And I would draw a line from the word number in verse 4 to the word measure in verse 5. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? Do you feel like you have a hurt? Do you have a heart that is so broken that you say, there is no one in all the world who can fix my hurt? What the psalmist is saying here is he's saying, 
Have you gone far away from God? Or do you have a deep hurt within your heart? Let me tell you that the God who fixes these things is the God who has numbered all the stars, but there is no number to measure His understanding. And then he comes back to the topic that he was working on. This is kind of a a sidebar to say, I want you to understand how powerful this God is for your situation. So that he comes back to it in verse 6 and he says, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Congregation, remember where we began when singing Psalm 1? We are on a journey to the gathering of the just, and we're on that journey, and now we come to Psalm 147, and what does the gathering of the just look like? They are humble. God gathers the humble. He lifts them up, but the wicked He brings down to the ground. This is where our hope is. So the first awareness this morning is that Yahweh restores his church. And you can see a little application in the sidebar. I'd ask you to think about a time when God brought you back to himself. What were the circumstances in which God brought you back? Maybe it was a small thing. For me, I remember a couple of turning points in my life. Maybe the time that I got my mouth washed out with palm olive soap. Maybe it was a timely spanking from my third grade teacher. Does that give you a few ideas in order to recognize God's working in your own life? How God brought you back because you were going down a road that led you to be an outcast. But God brought you back. The second awareness is Yahweh delights in His church. Yahweh delights in His church. Notice uh, you have in verse 1, praise the Lord. Now verse 7, it's as though He starts another topic and He begins with, sing to the Lord. How? With thanksgiving. Thanksgiving congregation um, is not just the polite thing, right? Boys and girls, your parents tell you, right? You receive a gift from somebody or receive something from somebody and your, your mom says, what do you say? Thank you. What is thank you? Thank you is acknowledging or giving credit to whom credit is due. That's what the psalmist is doing here when he gives thanks to God and he turns it into a song. He says, make melody to our God on the lyre. A lyre was a musical instrument. What does he do? Look at verse 8. He covers the heavens with clouds. And I've set this up so I've highlighted the word cloud and I've connected it to the next sentence and connected it to the word rain into the next sentence where you have the word grass and to the next sentence the word food. You see that? Clouds, rain, grass, food. The psalmist isn't just kind of randomly listing a whole bunch of things. The psalmist is saying, I want you to see how is it that God feeds the horses that are grazing out on the pasture. Look at it this way. Verse 8, he says, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. Where does the rain come from, boys and girls? From the clouds. The clouds come from Lake Michigan. They come over the land. And then uh, you have condensation so that now it falls to the ground 
And when the rain falls to the ground, we come to the next one. He makes grass grow on the hills. What does the grass need in order to grow? It needs the rain that comes from the cloud that comes from Lake Michigan. And then what happens? Then the horses or the sheep or whatever, they go out and they nibble the grass out in the pasture. What happened here? God, who is in heaven, has supplied food to the animals that are out in the field. So, boys and girls, next time you see it raining and you look at the grassy lawn, say, hey, Dad, guess what? God is sending the rain to cause the grass to grow to feed the horses, or we could say the cows, so that we can have hamburgers tonight. Do you see what's going on here? The psalmist is trying to see very clearly and to show, is God worthy of our thanksgiving? Absolutely. So when you sit down and, and look at your breakfast, I don't know what you had for breakfast this morning. Did you have eggs? They came from the chickens who ate from the seeds that came from the trees. That Okay, you, you kind of get the idea. God supplies. And so thanksgiving is simply giving credit where credit is due. And so it follows then in verse 10, his delight, and I've emphasized these three words in the last three lines here, his delight, his pleasure, and then pleasure in verse 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse. Why is his delight not in the strength of the horse? Because God gave strength to the horse, because the horse eats the grass that comes from the that comes from the rain, that comes from the clouds, that came from Lake Michigan. And so God doesn't say, well, look at the horse. But guess what happened? In those days, the horses were the armored personnel carriers in battle. They would carry the chariots. They would pull the the army captains into battle. They would bring the the soldiers into battle. That was their war uh, machine. And then he goes on to say, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. Now, this is not a beauty contest or or some muscle contest. No, it's about the legs of the man is what made a soldier a soldier. If a soldier had, had strong legs, he could run fast, he could move a long ways, he could be part of the army, and if you've got an army of men with strong legs, you've got a powerhouse. But God doesn't take pleasure in the legs of a man. Isn't this what we tend to put our confidence in today, congregation? Well, there's a war going on over in the Ukraine. Well, let's just add some some of our own forces and our troops to it, and we can fix this. Or let's just work harder in order to make more money, in order that we might, whatever the case may be. What does God take pleasure in? If God is the one who numbers all the stars, but His understanding cannot be numbered, if God is the one who can cause the the clouds to come up over Lake Michigan and then carry the rain over the land, cause the grass to grow, to feed the animals, to give you hamburgers, what does He take delight in? Verse 11, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. And in Hebrew poetry, the genius of the poetry is when you put two lines together where you try to say the same thing, maybe in just a little bit different way. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? The next line says, In those who hope in His steadfast love. In those 
who hope in His steadfast love. And you can mark up your papers here, but I would put a hyphen between steadfast and love. Put a little hyphen to connect those two words because in the Hebrew language, that's one single word and it's the word chesed. Chesed. The English Standard Version um, rightly recognizes chesed is probably one of the top three or four key words in the whole Old Testament. And so they have tried to consistently translate the word chesed as steadfast love. Steadfast love combines two uh, key ideas. Steadfast, and it's as steadfast as law. And so it is a word that's connected with covenant. That is, uh, entering into a legal agreement, a legal relationship. And the other part of it is tenderness, compassion, pity, mercy. And it combines that with the strength of law. And the best illustration that I know of, and I've mentioned it here before, and it's the illustration of a marriage ceremony. It's in a marriage ceremony where you have the bride and the groom, and they come together, and the central part of a wedding is not the sermon. You can have a sermon without a wedding. And you can have a wedding without a sermon. I'm not saying that you should. But you cannot have a wedding without vows. Vows. It's where the husband says, I take you to be my wedded wife as long as we both shall live. And the wife says, I will take you to be my husband and I will submit to you and respect you so long as we both shall live. You see that? It is steadfast in the sense that it is a legal transaction, but it is, uh, it is founded upon the affections of love, and you have chesed, steadfast love. So when it says here in verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in His steadfast love, How has God committed Himself to you and me? He has committed Himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, I promise to forgive every single one of your sins. I promise because of the Lord Jesus Christ to give you His Holy Spirit. How then do we hope in that steadfast love? We come to Him in prayer and we ask Him for everything that we need. We come to Him with our sin and we say, this is what I've done. And He forgives your sins. And you say, here's where I struggle. Here's where the temptation is in my life. And He gives you His Holy Spirit. Just as the Lord supplied food for the animals, and we also noted there in verse 9, He gave food to the young ravens when they cry. If God gives food to the ravens who cry... Will He not supply you? So next time you're driving along the road and you see one of those blackbirds picking at a dead animal on the road, think to yourself, that raven cried out to God for food and He gave it to him. And if God supplies that bird with that food right there, is He not able to supply your need, congregation? Well, that brings us to the last thing. 
And that is this third awareness, and that is that Yahweh relates to his church. He relates to his church. Notice we began in verse 1 with praise the Lord, verse 7, sing to the Lord, and now we have a double uh, phrase almost right in the middle of this psalm. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. These two lines really are saying the very same things, but by putting them together, notice the Lord, His name is Yahweh. It is directly connected to Yahweh is the only true God. And it is, he is not the only true God, but Yahweh is Israel's God, Jerusalem's God, Zion's God. And then he gives four reasons. Why should you praise your God, O Zion? Number one, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. In other words, he protects you. Number two, he blesses your children within you. In other words, he continues your family line. Number three, he makes peace in your borders. God is the one who can raise up the enemies. God is the one who can bring down the enemies. And number four, he fills you with the finest of the wheat. If we had time this morning, we would go back to Deuteronomy chapters 28 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we would see how what God was doing for them was providing blessings as well as curses. Is God able to bring transformation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how does He do that? He does it by the power of His Word. He does it by the power of His Word. If you look at verse 15, He sends out His command to the earth. What does that look like? He sends out His command to the earth. Does he put it in an envelope and send it? Right? We tend to think of sending something by way of email. But God sends his command to the earth. What does that look like? Look at the next line. It says, his word. And if I were to mark up my paper here, I would circle uh, his command and his word, and I would put them in the same circle. What is his command? His command is his word, and his word runs swiftly. His word runs swiftly. Boys and girls, that maybe sounds funny to see a word running. But his word running forth simply means that when God speaks, it happens. It kind of reminds us of the beginning of the Bible when it says, And God spoke, and there was light. God said, Let there be a division between the darkness and the light. Let there be a division between the waters above and the waters below. God said, let there be land. God said, let there be plants on the land. God said, let there be lights in the heavens. And there was. But now notice this. What does His Word do? Here again, I would circle a couple of words here. In verse 16, in the first line, I would circle the word snow. The second word I would circle is the word frost. In verse 17, I would circle the word crystals of ice, crystals of ice. And then in the second line of verse 17, I would circle the word cold. Do you see what he's doing? He's grouping all of these cold things together. And he says, he gives snow like wool. Remember the first day of snow in the, 
in the fall or early winter and you wake up one morning and there's just a blanket of snow and it looks so pretty? He says, just as a a sheep has a layer of wool, God lays down a layer of snow. Just like that overnight. The second thing it says, he scatters frost like ashes. Have you ever looked out on a frosty morning and you can see the sparkles on every single blade of grass and maybe unfortunately on some of your spring flowers? And you think, it's as though God just put out the ashes. There it is. And then it talks about these ice crystals. You know, here in Michigan, you can have something in between rain and snow, right? Uh, maybe hail, or we talk about more of an ice storm where it's, it's too cold to be rain, but it's not quite cold enough to be snow. And so you have these ice crystals, and he says, they're like crumbs, right? Maybe you had some breadcrumbs on the side of your plate this morning, or maybe they fell on the floor. But then he comes to this question, who can stand before his cold? Who can stand before his cold? Nobody. I mean, what do we do in the wintertime? We turn our furnaces on and our houses are warm. And if we go outside, we put on a coat. We put our mittens on in order to stay warm. But even the boys and girls, as much as they like to play outside, eventually they have to come in because they start to get cold. Nobody can stand before God's cold. So what does God do? Notice in verse 15, I emphasize the word word. Verse 18, it says, he sends out his word. And what happens when his word goes out again? His word melts them. What does he melt? He melts the snow. He melts the frost. He melts the ice crystals. He melts the cold so that it goes away. What happens? Verse 18, it says, he makes his wind blow And the waters flow. As the warmer winds blow, what do you get? You get the drip, drip, drip. And the the snow banks begin to melt away. And the streams are running down the street. God is doing that. Once again, make sure you have your eye glasses on for your God glasses so that when you see that in the spring, you say, hey, look, Dad, look, Mom, God is causing the snow to melt. Now, there's an interesting thing here, because in verse 15, we had his word, verse 18, his word, and all that had to do with the realm of nature. But then we come to verse 19, and again, we have the emphasis on his word. In the first two, with the ice and the snow and the melting, that affects everybody. Anybody who lives in the northern region here who who experiences ice and cold and so forth. But when he comes to verse 18, he's drawing a contrast and he says, he declares his word to Jacob. And what kind of word is that? It's beyond the natural realm. And so he adds a second line. And in the second line, he uses his statutes and his rules. What word of God? His statutes. In other words, the written, the written rules. How do you live? Who is God? Where did we come from? All of those things. He gives those statutes and He gives His rules. In other words, 
What are the rulings uh, that God gives? What kind, of a crime, what kind of a punishment is appropriate for this crime? And those kind of things. And it says that he gives these to Israel. And then he goes on to explain how unique this is. In verse 20, he says, he has not dealt thus. In other words, he has not dealt this way with any other nation. Congregation, do you recognize how unique you are to have the Word of God? Not everybody in the world has the Word of God. There are other places in our world today where the Word of God has not yet been translated into their language. But we have it in multiple English versions. And we've had it for generations. Going all the way back to the 1500s. For nearly 500 years, we've had the Bible in our own language. Don't take that for granted. There are many who don't have it. In fact, it says at the tail end of verse 20, it says, they do not know His rules. They do not know how to conduct their lives. And I can tell you from my work that there are many people who have grown up without the Word of God. And when you grow up without the Word of God, you have no direction as to why you should get up in the morning or even what is right and what is wrong. Many of you have grown up with this. And you're kind of like a fish who doesn't even know that he's wet. Fish have no idea what wetness is. It's just the environment in which they live, but they can't live without it. We need to recognize what God has given to us. And so the psalmist begins where he ends, where he begins. And you notice at the very beginning, praise the Lord. What does he do at the very end? Praise the Lord. So let's come back to our question originally. Why do you have to go to church? The question isn't, do I have to? The question is, I get to. Go back to verse 1 again. Do you agree with me this morning, congregation, that it is good to sing praises to our God? If it is good to eat ice cream, it is even better to sing praises to God because everything that I have depends upon Him. And not only that, but it is pleasant because now I begin to see. I begin to see the clouds and how they bring rain that produces grass that gives food to both the animals and to the ravens. I now see life differently, and when I see the snow, and when I see the ice crystals, and when I see the frost, and I realize that God, simply by His Word, causes them to be. And when He causes His wind to blow, they turn to water again. God did that. So that everywhere that I look around, I see God's handprint, certainly in creation, but I see it all the more clearly in the Bible, and God has given me both. It is fitting then. It is fitting then to sing a song of praise to God. And in our tradition, we have the privilege not only to do it once on the Lord's Day, 
but also a second time in the evening. I will hope to see you here tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which you restore those who have been outcast, those who have fallen into sin, which includes all of us. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you have drawn us back to yourself. Father, we thank you that you are a God who takes delight in those who trust in you. May you develop that trust within us so that we might see more clearly your hand in creation, but that we also might recognize it in the very book that you have preserved for us. As we read the pages of Scripture, may we, may we recognize you in it, and not only recognize you, but may we recognize your love for us. And may we realize, Heavenly Father, that you are the God who relates to us. You relate to us because you have given us a written word so that we might know you personally. O oh Lord God, hear our prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen.